For me, it probably would be movies and television, you know, that show you what this family, you know, is supposed to look like. And being a 10-year-old kid up until me going to college, me being a kid that constantly saw reminders of what family was supposed to look like and knowing that it wasn't that I wasn't able to have it, but my family looked different from the family that I saw on TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Stronger Than You Think, a podcast by Youth Villages, and I'm your host, Sam Coates. In each episode, you'll hear a story of passion and resilience from an employee of Youth Villages, one of the top children's behavioral and mental health organizations in the country. Children with emotional and behavioral challenges and their families face unimaginably difficult circumstances. And it takes a committed, well-trained and supported person to show up for these children and youth every day to help them find their path to well-being. Join us to hear from individuals as those on the front lines of this work as they talk about their career journeys and how their own personal experiences fuel their passion making a difference every day. Our guest this week is Rick Trell Harris. As Rick Trell says, he grew up not too far from youth that lived the foster experience. His mother sadly passed away when he was young. And while his father was in prison, his grandmother took him in along with the many other kids she fostered throughout her life. After playing college football and knowing other careers were not for him, Rick Trell came to Youth Villages, where he is now able to work with kids and help them choose the right path. Rick Trell is currently the assistant director for Bill's Place, one of Youth Village's residential facilities. Before we get going at Youth Village's, as you know, there are several different programs that each guest may reference. Today, Youth Village's residential programs help girls and boys ages 6 through 17 with serious emotional, mental, and behavioral issues on campuses in Tennessee and Georgia. Our goal is to provide specialized therapy and support so that youth can overcome challenges and go home or to less restrictive care as quickly as possible. Now, please enjoy this week's episode with Rick Trell Harris. Rick Trell, great to see you. Nice meeting you. What's it feel like to get your own podcast? It feels amazing. So I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, the PV podcast, Joe Budden podcast, Drink Champs is <laughs> probably the one inappropriate podcast, but uh, I listen to quite a few podcasts, so it's a pleasure to be on one. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody needs their own. <laughs> yeah. So glad we can do it for you today. Thank you. So I know you played college football. Mm-hmm. What do you see with the children and families that you serve? How important are sports? So one thing that I've noticed for our employees as well, uh, it's just it's, it's giving them like structure, uh, I would say, for the kids. It gives them something to look forward to. Like in, in my building, in my program, we can always tie whatever it is that a kid is doing to sports. Like if a kid wants to play soccer, we talk about soccer. If a kid wants to play football and basketball, um, whenever it's a struggle in the building or with these specific kids, you can always tie it back to sports. What it is that you want to do or what do you want to do um, with your life? What's your goals? And it helps. It helps with their behavior. Like, and they love sports. Like, we played basketball probably about 
five hours out of the day, and we just got a, a turf football field. Really? At our campus, yeah, the kids love it. They're outside all the time. So rain isn't really a factor for them right now because it's not muddy. They can just go out, play, or they don't have to wait as long for it to dry up before they can go outside to play. So sports is a, a big deal for our program. I know that you said that resiliency means a lot to you, mm-hmm. and I know it means a lot to youth villages. Are you saying that sports is helpful for the kids to learn, you know, just so much about life and apply it to wherever they're at at that point? Is that what you're saying? Definitely. It teaches them like a natural resilience, Um, playing a sport and losing or playing a sport and being successful um, just teaches you so many life lessons. And that's whatever sport the kids choose to play, just being able to experience a win or a loss, talking through it, understanding how that win or loss made you feel, it's definitely a big deal for us in our program. So sports definitely teaches our kids resiliency every day. Did you play all four years in college? I did, yeah. I almost played five. Really? I had, yeah, I had a coaching change um, that ended up – I had to make a decision. I was like, do I play this year? I'm not going to the NFL, unfortunately. But uh, do I play this year and continue to have, you know, issues back at home, or do I make a adult my first adult decision, <laughs> made an adult decision to uh, come back and start working? Uh, and I think it's a blessing that I did because if I didn't, if I stayed that fifth year, I wouldn't have came into you villages when I did, and you know who knows how that could have happened. And you're the assistant director of residential mm-hmm. services, yep. Bell's Place, right? Mm-hmm. When you think about your own career right now. And you think about sports, athletics, you talked about knowing how you feel after a loss or mm-hmm. after a win. Those lessons and those principles, how do they help you with your work, given the opportunity and advancement that you've had? Yeah, so in my program, or with my job, you have to have a short-term memory. Um, and anybody that plays sports knows you cannot dwell on a bad play or you can't dwell on losing or dwell on winning even. Um, so one thing that, that I push in my building uh, and in my program is for my managers to be able to make adjustments fast. Um, we try to treat each management team like a game plan, you know, game planning around safety, game planning around retention, game planning around culture in our building and not thinking about the wins and losses too long because it can change so fast. Same thing in sports, you know, winning one week and you got a a team that's a little bit more difficult the next week or you play the team that wasn't that good this week. So you enjoyed that win. But we got to think about moving forward because in in a congregate setting, like it's an ever changing environment. Things are constantly changing. The environment is constantly shifting. You get new kids every day. Unfortunately, right now, um, we're meeting a lot of new staff, too, trying to open up a new por- a new program and expanding the building to get to that 144-kid goal that we have in the building um, this year. So it, it's a, a ever-changing environment, and thinking about that and leadership and tying that to sports has been benefiting us greatly in my program. So you like the momentum? You I like the it. pace? Yeah, I love it. It's fast. Always changing. You never know what you're going to expect when you walk in the bed. You can try, but you can't, you can't plan for it every day. And I love it. I'm sorry. It's, it's crazy. People tell me I'm crazy for that a lot, but yeah. I love it. So it's another, it's a similar environment mm-hmm. than what college sports yep. or high school sports. Definitely. Yeah. Almost just like it. It's neat. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was going to start the interview there, but now I know why you're successful at what you do. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. You moved in with your grandmother when you were 10. Is yep. that right? Yeah. And that's because your mother passed away. Mm-hmm. As much as you can share, feel comfortable sharing, can you talk about what that was like for you? Uh, yeah. So my mother passed away. Uh, I was 10 years old. During that transition where her health started to get a little bit worse, uh, we ended up moving with my grandmother, and then she transitioned while I was living with my grandmother. But it was it was challenging at first because I was grieving as a child, and my grandmother was grieving, you know, as a parent that lost their child. Her daughter. Yeah, her daughter. So uh, both of us were grieving, and during that time, my grandmother made a decision. I was young. I don't really know what made her make that decision, but she decided to take in kids that weren't her own, and she decided to become a foster parent. Uh, while you were there? While I was there, yeah. So she ended up uh, fostering a lot. I, I try to put a number on it sometimes, but she fostered a lot of you villages foster kids, whether it was directly or through respite. But she had a lot of kids. And this is before Youth Villages. Yeah, this was before I even thought of it. No, anywhere close to where right, it is. Today. That too. Like it was not, we weren't the organization that we were, that we are right now. We weren't in the 23 states. Like I don't know what the numbers looked like back then, but it was definitely the beginning of Youth Villages. Was she married? Your grandmother? Uh, she was divorced. What was her name? Carolyn Taylor. What was she like? An amazing woman talking about resiliency. She probably taught me some of that too, because while we both were grieving, she still continued every day, you know, trying to get through it the best that she could. So, great woman. Still around. Uh, she actually, her last youth villages foster kid that she had, he's receiving some other services now, but he is 25. How many kids do you think she impacted? I would say over 100. That spent time with her? That spent time with her, either directly, like, living there or through respite programs. Why is she the way she is? She is just an all-around great person and a strong person, too. Uh, So she's originally from Detroit, Michigan, and moved to Orange Mound, uh, Tennessee, when she got to Memphis. So she knows all about resiliency. Uh, She knows about things not being, you know, given to you. She knows about pushing through when things get hard, which is why she was such a great foster parent. Like, she was able to impact those kids in a way that people, you know, couldn't imagine. Like, she taught them life skills. The same thing we ask, you know, our, our residential or direct care staff to do. She taught them life skills every day. When you say she moved from Detroit to mm-hmm. Orange Mound, she knew all about resiliency. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? So being from Detroit, that being the Motor City, and that city taking the losses that they did financially and moving to Orange Mound during the shift where Orange Mound went from, you know, being one of the staples in Memphis and then being impacted by poverty and people leaving the community and finding jobs outside of the community. She knows a lot about how to get through it. Like, you know, when when you might not have, you know, the meal that you want to have, but we got this meal that can make sure you aren't hungry. 
you know, that kind of resiliency is, is some of the things that she taught the kids, you know, understanding that right now it might not look the way that you want it to. It might not feel the way that you want it to. You know, right now life isn't going the way that we want it to go, but I've been through it and I can tell you how to get through it too. Where'd she get her hope from? I can't tell you. She, she, at this point, my grandmother probably is about 75. So she got me by uh, a lot of years. So yeah. it's, it's, it's hard for me to do that math. But from what I heard, I, I never met my great-grandmother on her side or my great-grandfather, but I hear that they were some hardworking people, you know, that understood kind of getting it out of, no, like getting it out of the mud and being, you know, these hardworking staples for their family. Wow. Mm-hmm. You remember anything about your mom? I do. Yeah, I do. Uh, just a sweet woman. She was resilient, too. Uh, they say that she was a lot to deal with when she was upset, and I can kind of see where where I get that from sometimes. But uh, Passionate? Passionate. Loves whatever it was that she was doing. I remember her working at FedEx, and I did that for like two weeks, so I know what kind of resilience it takes, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. So when you were growing up with your grandmother, how many other children were in the house with you, usually at one time? Usually at once, it would at least be myself and two other kids, usually. If she had a respite situation, maybe three at the most. But it was a three, four-bedroom house, um, so we had space. We weren't crowded or anything, so yeah, Two, maybe two on the normal, three if she ended up getting a kid that uh, needed respite placement. Were you ever frustrated or bitter that there are other kids in the house when you were there? Frustrated, yes. That's a lot. It, it, we're all boys, you know. Uh, just the normal growing pain. So I, I have siblings. Um, I have a sister on my dad's side. I have a sister and brother on my mom's side. On my dad's side, I'm the oldest. Uh, on my mom's side, I'm the youngest. So my brother is, I think he just turned 38. Um, and my sister just turned 40 um, this year. So the age gap is crazy. So um, those foster kids were more so my siblings outside of my nephew. So you felt more in common or closer? Mm-hmm, definitely. It was the normal, the, the normal struggles that any you know, kid would have with his brothers. That kind of frustration, never anything crazy. I knew what the goal was for them. Um, my grandmother made sure I understood what those kids were going through. So it was never a bitterness, I would say. So what is a child that's being fostered? What are they going through? They're going through a lot, man. It, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of thoughts that can go through your head because I, I try to think about it at times and I wasn't too far from, you know, from them as far as what I was going through. Like, I could have easily been a foster child had my grandmother had not decided to take me in because my father was in prison during that time, probably a year, two years after my mother had transitioned. So it's a lot. And thinking about the, you know, the the trauma that could be attached to it, I don't know what it is that they saw before they went into foster care, but... Um, my grandmother made sure I understood, you know, even if she didn't know, she tried to paint that picture the best that she could. You know, these kids have problems. These kids need help, and I'm helping them. So if I'm helping them, 
you gonna help me help them. So, you know, you're gonna treat them like they family. You're gonna make sure they understand what family's supposed to feel like. We sat and ate dinner together, like we ate meals together at a table. Like it was normal. It was it was normal to me. It sounds like you had a strong sense of respect for your grandmother. Yeah, definitely. I still don't curse in front of her. Why? <laughs> I mean, what did she do to command that and to receive that kind of respect? It wasn't even a command. It was just me seeing what she deals with and her being able to still step outside of herself and instill the things in me. Like her taking that time showed me that she deserves my respect. You know, um, again, you felt, I you felt her love? Definitely, all the time. And you saw her behavior? Felt her love, saw her behavior. Saw her service. Mm-hmm, saw her service. We went to church every Sunday. Like I, I knew what kind of woman it was. She deserved. So she walked the talk? Definitely, yeah. So she, that made you respect her? I learned about the YV way when I started here, and I see, yeah, Granny, Granny lived the YV way. She, she was the YV way. Wow. Mm-hmm. You talked about the thoughts earlier. I asked you about a child that is being fostered. You know, what do they go through? And mm-hmm. you referenced thoughts. You also referenced the closeness that you had with them because mm-hmm. they're closer to your age, your right. family. And you said you had thoughts of your own. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I ask you, like, what were those thoughts that you were saying that you were dealing with personally that you also thought some of the children that had come through the foster system might be wrestling with as well? Uh, for me, it probably would be movies and television, you know, that show you what this family, you know, is supposed to look like. And being a 10-year-old kid up until, you know, me going to college, me being a kid that, constantly saw reminders of what family was supposed to look like and knowing that it wasn't that I wasn't able to have it, but my family looked different from the family that I saw on TV. You know, my like family was perfect different. image. Right. Yeah. My family was different from the Cosby show. Like I didn't have that kind of family. I had my grandmother and, you know, my brother and sister when they weren't working and my dad, once he got out of prison, you know, I had that kind of family. My family wasn't in one household. I had to go from my grandmother's house to see my brother and go from my brother's house to see my sister and, you know, go see my dad once he, you know, got out of prison. So those were the thoughts, just constantly seeing reminders that is not perfect right now. You know, for a child, things are supposed to be as close to perfect as possible. Unfortunately, our kids, you know, don't get to see that. And that's why I approach my job the way that I do. Like my my managers and, you know, anybody that works around me knows that we got to have an impact on these kids. You know, right now it is not perfect for them. They aren't watching television shows and saying, oh, that's me. You know, it's a little different. So, yeah, but those were the thoughts. So you're saying that is what drives you with your staff and with your team. Mm Mm-hmm. Every day. To give that to each child that, or each family that you come across. Definitely. Yeah, because we, you, know, you know the things that they're thinking alone or, you th- mm-hmm. or why they might feel out of place or why other people might have this, but we don't have that. Right. Yeah, and that pushes have, you. Is that what you're saying? Impact them. Yes, sir. We got to impact the kids. Do you remember, was there a point in your life where you kind of felt at peace with who you were, who your grandmother was, and you and your own life and your mm-hmm. own situation and, and, and not— necessarily as much comparison? No, I probably never have been at peace. It's hard to be at peace when you still see how kids are impacted and you see you still see 
you know, the the struggles that those kids have and where those struggles come from, being in that environment every day, like it's hard for your heartstrings not to be pulled at some point during the day, you know. I would say it's hard to detach, even though you have to. Um, so, no, still not at peace. Uh, on top of some other things, just around me with my, my family situation, my nephew being uh, incarcerated right now, and him being one person I think would have benefited from this setting. So, not at peace. I guess what you're saying is you, you can't be at peace personally because you feel the burden. Yeah, I, and I wouldn't call it a burden. It's just it's just being in it, being from inner city Memphis and still seeing how, you know, the kids are being impacted and treated uh, as well as, you know, the things that we still see, you know, on the news every day and the things that we hear about every day. It's hard to be at peace right now. I hear you. When did you know that you wanted to go to college? I knew that I wanted to go to college. So my grandmother, speaking to resiliency, so I had uh, – I was premature at birth, and I don't know what caused me to have it, but I had what they called a shunt put in my head. I had fluid on my brain. Uh, so for the longest, my family thought that I, like, could not play a sport, um, a contact sport. So when I was in the eighth grade, seventh grade summer, going into the eighth grade, I went to the doctor. They said, yeah, there's kids that play with this all the time. He can play, you know, he can play sports. And my grandmother sat me down and she said, if you start this, you better not stop. <laughs> and I didn't take that as, you know, don't quit, you know, during the eighth grade football practice or don't go to the 10th grade and quit at practice. Like I took that as go as far as this, as God plans for this to, to take you. So, yeah, she told me, once you start, you better not stop. I didn't go to all these doctor's appointments for nothing. So I knew then it was, if I don't go to college, it's because I'm not supposed to, but I, I plan to go to college. How would your life have gone differently if you didn't go to college? Had I not gone to college, it's a, a, a good thing and a bad thing. First thing, I would have I would have been in Memphis still, but uh, looking at the good thing, uh, I think I would have had more of an impact on my nephew. Um, so my nephew was close in age to me. Well, he's still, I mean, he is. He, he's alive. Um, but my nephew is four years older than me. Uh, during the time that we went through, you know, my mother passing away, all of those things, my nephew was more so like my little brother. And me going to college, just going back, before I went, um, when I was going through the recruiting process, my ACT score wasn't high. So a few coaches had pulled back. So I had some Division One offers. They didn't really want anything to do with me because my ACT score, it was a 17, which was what was required during that time. But my SOM score was like a 67.5 when it had to be a 68. Uh, so a few coaches pulled back. But during that process, I was praying. I was like, man... I'll take any offer as long as it's not the University of Memphis. Like, get me out of Memphis. I do not want to be in Memphis anymore. So I prayed for that. And in that prayer, I did not include my nephew. Uh, so I ended up going eight hours away to Tusculum. While I was in Tusculum, my nephew started to do things that I wasn't the model kid, but some of the stuff he was doing, I wouldn't have imagined, you know, they had tried. So he got in a lot of trouble while I was gone. Once I got back to Memphis, it was just a little, 
you know, too little, too late kind of thing. I tried to, you know, call and do all of that, but being eight hours away is different from, you know, being able to physically go to someone and talk to them. So a lot of conversation was on the phone, uh, but he ended up. So I was a TC at Dogwood. Um, I think I had just. What's TC mean? Teacher counselor. Um, so I had just, I think I, it might have been the end of my time as a teacher counselor or uh, the beginning of my time as a supervisor, but we ended up getting a phone call. He ended up going to Job Corps uh, because he dropped out, went to Job Corps and, you know, got involved in some things. So since that time, 2017, he's been in prison. So had I not gone to college, that would have been a good thing. Hopefully it would have been a good thing. I would have been able to have a bigger impact on him. So still hurt? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think it's, what is it, survivor's remorse. Um, I definitely think about that every day. You know, but who who knows where I was supposed to have been. So it, it's, I was supposed to have left Memphis, you know. So you're at peace with it. You're just being objective about some of the things that might have shaken out differently in certain ways. Cause uh, I was still not at peace because it's still the thought of impacting him. Like I wanted to impact him. And I, I was... I think that there's also another reason why I approach, you know, my job the way that I do, because I wasn't able to to impact my nephew who I guess at this point we would have to have consider him a at-risk youth, you know. So, no, I, I'm still not at peace with it. I try to feel a little better about it because it's still, you know, stay in Memphis and something possibly can happen, but you got him or leave Memphis and do something for yourself. And I could have came back. And, you know, made sure he was experiencing the things that I'm experiencing right now. What'd you do after you graduated? After I graduated, uh, I tried to relax for about a month, maybe. I had a, a couple of refund checks I hadn't spent. So I was trying to relax and they started to run out. So I went to FedEx and I was at FedEx, I think my second or third day in orientation. I had applied for Youth Villages during the time. I was like, okay, I'm going to apply for some jobs. If these when you're jobs, enjoying that check? Huh? That's when you're applying for Youth Villages? When I was at FedEx? No, no, when you got that check. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah when, the, when the check started to uh, run out. Yeah, it started to run out a little bit. So I was like, okay, I got to start applying for some jobs. Of course, me being 22, I'm like, yeah, they're going to call tomorrow. And, okay, tomorrow came and... I got to wait another day. Uh, I'm yeah. just waiting and waiting. Life. Right, yeah. So I ended up saying, you know, after a week, if I don't get a phone call, I'm going to go to FedEx. I know FedEx hired people like almost on the spot. Went to FedEx, got size for my work boots. Uh, orientation started. I was in orientation. I think we had, I think that day we might have been talking about the benefits at FedEx or something like that. And uh, I got a phone call while I was in orientation. And um, it was Tori Thomas, who is now the assistant director at the Rose Center. Tori was the residential coordinator at Dogwood. Talked to her, ended up getting an interview throughout that process of me throwing those boxes. But I was throwing boxes with a smile on my face for right. that next two weeks because I knew I was not going to be doing it. It was hot, too. It was like July. Had to have been 105 degrees outside. So I was in the back of... Uh, 18 wheeler, so it was it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. So really, you graduated. Mm -hmm. You wanted to work at Youth Villages. Mm -hmm. Is that because your your grandmother? 
you already knew about youth villages from right. her, and so, then because of what you've experienced with your nephew and your love for him. Right. So, so is my that, goal when I graduated was to do physical therapy. So I went to school and uh, my major was sports and exercise science. So I didn't know. I didn't do my research. I did not know, okay, you need a a license and you need to be certified and all of those things. So I thought it was just going to be easy. So most of the jobs that I saw on Indeed were like physical therapy technicians or occupational therapy technician, and it was paying around 30 back then probably around $36,000 annually. And as I was doing, like when I, when I applied for jobs, it was a checklist for me. It was like, okay, as close as I can to my major. Uh, what I majored in isn't making that much money. Let me try a hospital setting. And I just went down a list. And at the end of that, it was, what do you know about? You know, I knew about you villages. So saw it on Indeed, did not know what the position, you know, was going to require of me. Applied for you villages that way. But I did connect it back to my grandmother. I knew what they stood for. But me knowing that, like I'll give you an example. When I had my interview, I did not go straight to the campus that I had applied for. I went to Shelby Oaks because that's what I knew you villages to be for the foster care program. Right. So I went to the Shelby Oaks office and they was like, no, you are in residential. Your interview is almost in East Tennessee. So that's when I realized, you know, it was bigger than just my grandmother having foster children. It was, I got there and I'm like, oh, I didn't know, you know, that we had this. Like I thought that all it was was foster kids, you know, so that was when I understood the difference. What can you say, what advice can you share to somebody that's in college right now, maybe mm -hmm. coming out that has a heart for this work about how to think about things right, about if they want to pursue a career in this, what can you share with them that might be, you know, a few things that are helpful mm -hmm. that you can think about that are very important? Uh, so getting into this line of work requires someone to not only look at, you know, what your inspiration was. I can say all day my inspiration was, you know, my grandmother and my inspiration, you know, is my nephew's situation. You know, you can be inspired, but after a while, being inspired is not enough. So being in this setting, you have to find something that motivates you every day. Finding a kid whose story motivates you to want to impact those kids. You cannot make a true impact or you can't have a true impact, you know, on a child's life if you're strictly going off of what inspired you. Like you have to find something that's going to motivate you every day because it can it can become repetitive. You know, if if I walked into my building every day and, you know, I go and get coffee and I sit in my office for this meeting, you know, that'll, that'll kind of run out, you know, and I'll lose, I'll lose sight of what the bigger picture is. So finding that motivation and tying that and attaching it to my inspiration, which is something I got from uh, Mike Tumbling on the Pivot podcast. Steelers coach? Yep, Steelers coach. Great podcast. You try How'd you find yours? I found my motivation just the different kids that I've met, I won't use their names, but meeting those kids, I think really, really doing a phone call and hearing what, you know, that interaction sounded like between a child and a parent when that parent, you know, isn't in that child's life or... 
The pain uh, of the child? The pain of the child or, you know, just the disappointment at the end of it, even though the phone call seemed to have went well to me, their kid's head drops, you know, when it's over. Does that make you feel like you're back at your grandmother's house? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. It hit home. Um, or the kids that, you know, have to call FSWs because, you know, their parent isn't on their phone call list or calling mentors, like just not having or just going back, you know, me saying I'm not experiencing that perfect picture of a family that I saw, you know, on television. You know, I, I think that the kid felt that in that moment. When did you find that? When I was a teacher counselor. So you found it early on? Mm-hmm, I found it early, and I still see it. You know, it, it's, not, it's not me going into, even though I'm a little, you know, separated from it now, it's not me going onto a courtyard with my kids and not, I, I, I check in with them, you know, how's everything, you know, how you feeling, you know, how, uh, how are things at home, how's treatment right now, how's permanency right now. So we talk about all those things because I know when I leave or when that kid has that phone call, they going to experience that or they'll feel that. And you're saying that's what keeps you engaged? Mm-hmm. Yep. You've been at Youth Villages for six years now, is that right? Mm-hmm. August 22nd. And six years. It seems that you are an example of somebody that gets opportunity. Right. Not being passionate about the work, doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Is there any opportunity for somebody to come work for a place like Youth Villages where there's a lot of opportunity internally, but there's mm-hmm. potentially a lot of opportunity for development. Have you seen that in your own career? I have. Yeah, I've seen a lot, a lot of growth. When I started, my position wasn't even a position at Youth Villages. An assistant director was not um, a position when I first started as a teacher counselor. It was, you know, supervisor, program manager, then directors. So the growth is amazing. And we see it every day. We see it in the facilities this, you know, that, that Pat puts on campuses. We see it when, you know, we, we add an activity center or my building having a movie theater for the kids in there. Uh, so we see it every day, whether that's with the positions or with the things that puts on our campuses for the kids to enjoy. So you're just saying you see the opportunity, mm-hmm. you see the ideas, you see the things that kids need. Right. You see that. So it's, are you saying it's exciting or there's a buzz it to is, it? It's, it's very exciting to know that our CEO will have a conversation with a kid and anybody else will just be walking by and think, oh, okay, you know, he's just talking to the kids. You know, he, he just want to see how the kids are doing. No, he's going to take whatever that kid said and he's going to apply it. Our Bauer Center was from him having a conversation with a kid about what that kid wanted to see on campus. You know, if a kid talks about not being able to be outside enough, we might put canopies over an outside court to make sure that kid can play basketball, you know, while it's raining. So just knowing that we have leadership like that, that listen, they have an imagination where they want the organization to be, you know, as big as possible. That's a part of the reason why we're growing as much as we are and we, why we have so many opportunities for growth in this organization. Let's say there's a supporter out there listening to this, and let's say somebody is hearing more and more about Youth Villages. To somebody that's outside that mm-hmm. might resonate with this, might resonate with you and what you're doing, your story, Youth Villages as a whole, what do you think is the reason why outsiders should continue to support 
with their time or money mm-hmm. with youth villages and, and like with what you're just saying, because that building happened because of Pat hearing that from the child. But then there's obviously, there's a strong team to make that happen. Right. Uh, I would say because we, the organization is in the midst of all of the things that impact, you know, the child welfare system. You know, we have our Memphis allies and we do these walks and, you know, community cleanups with Memphis allies to make sure that we're not detached from, you know, the the environment that we're in, you know, with the kids that we serve. We're in inner city Memphis. So knowing that, um, knowing that you would be helping an organization that's in the midst of it and don't mind, you know, getting their hands dirty. You know, we're out here. Um, we're trying to have the biggest impact on the kids that we can. So I would say that's that's why. Like, you would be back in an organization that truly cares, truly wants to have an impact, and the data shows, you know, that the things that we do are working. Even though we want to impact it more, you know, the, the, the things that we're doing are working. So I think that that would be a reason why someone should – continue to want to help help us grow. And you're saying it means something that mm-hmm. the organization itself loves the children or loves the family so much mm-hmm. that they're going to be out there in the community mm-hmm. with each person and being a part of not just those people's lives, but a part of those communities. And right. that's one of the key things that makes an organization successful. Mm-hmm. And you're saying the data and everything speaks for itself, but the true love of the child or the true love of the family and understanding them and also with these stories as you've shared it, right. that's a differentiator. Is right. that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Um, we didn't want to just leave it at, you know, impacting the kids. We want to impact who's impacting the kids. You know, we want to impact the adults that are a part of, uh, you know, gun crime in Memphis. So knowing that, um, knowing that you're a part of an organization or that you're helping an organization that's not just looking at the right now problem or the problem that's right here in front of me, but I want to figure out what's the problem to the problem. Uh, I would say that that's, that's a big part of it. So, What do you want most for your own career? I just want to keep growing. Um, I want to be wherever it is that I'm supposed to be uh, in this organization, but I definitely would like to you know, still be a part of this organization. I can't imagine anything other than you villages right now. What makes you content? I'm, it's, there's a lot of things going on mm-hmm. in our society and country where it seems like very few people are actually content with where they're at. Not from a complacency standpoint, mm-hmm. but you seem at peace where you are within your career mm-hmm. and you know, with the career that you have and who you're doing it with. I'm just curious, why are you content? Because I know that my leaders think the same way that I do. Even though we're speaking about being content, I know that my leaders aren't complacent with where we are as an organization with the kids that we're impacting. Um, I know that they aren't okay with what's going on in the community. And I know that they'll drive me to drive my people to make sure we're impacting those kids. So I think it's just the top-down mentality that we have in our organization that makes me okay with saying I'm okay with being where I am right now. What have you learned about taking care of yourself with the energy and the passion that you bring, the competitiveness that mm-hmm. you have in your own personality? Uh, it's important. I definitely try to uh, separate as much as I can when I am off. Uh, I try to understand that when I'm working uh, or if it's a work week, I'm, I'm working, you know, and I'll, 
you know, practice my self-care on the weekends, taking vacations, you know, traveling, shopping, things like that. Just the simple things are able to, you know, help me be a little more at peace when I'm not at work. But I just understand what the bigger picture is. So I try to, you know, drive and drive and drive. So that way I can relax on the weekends. You know what I mean? Or I can't enjoy vacation because I know that we've done the things that we, you know, the done or done the best things that we could, you know, in my program. So that way we can relax when it's time to relax. But right now we got to kind of get through this. You feel like you've done the best you can. So then you feel like when it's time to be off, you can be off. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just looking at our numbers and where we are with staff, how staff are feeling, what's the culture in the building right now, what the safety look like in the building right now. And if we're at a good place then, speaking to the point that uh, I made earlier about um, having this short-term memory, we'll enjoy it on our off days. When we get back on Monday, we're going to reassess it, see what we did, see what we need to work on, and impact this week so we can relax on the weekend again. Last question I have. Mm -hmm. Is there somebody that comes to mind that you think about when you think about a story or relationship with somebody that you've seen transform their life? A few people. For one, Ms. Nicole Fannin, um, who, are, who is our uh, executive director uh, over the Rose Center, um, Bill's Place, Spiritual Life, and our education services. Um, just with the time that she takes, you know, with her people, um, the people that report to her, and making sure they're okay. You know, she, she understands what it's like to, to be in a congregate setting and being in that environment that we're in and understanding, you know, what a, what a staff needs to, to help them, you know, help them get through it. My high school football coach, Rodney Salisbury, just thinking now with me uh, mentoring kids in the Pure Academy and seeing how much he invested in us with us going to college, talking to, you know, phone ringing off of the hook because he's talking to college coaches you know, 24 hours out of the day to help us get in school and seeing that that does not stop. I probably, I would say Coach Salisbury on top of teaching, coaching seven days out of the week because he's having to interface with so many coaches. And then uh, my father, once he got out of prison, he invested a lot in me, took a lot of time to, you know, make sure I had what I needed. Um, and then my grandmother just for the sacrifices that she made while I was growing up, so... I think they'll be proud when they hear this. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're an amazing man, and it's a privilege to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you. From Youth Villages, I'd like to say thank you for listening to this episode of Stronger Than You Think. And thank you, Rick Trell Harris, for sharing your story with us. For more information about careers with Youth Villages, visit www.youthvillages.org. That's youthvillages.org. We have also included resources in the show notes where you can find out more information about our programs. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to support the show, the best thing you can do is recommend it to a friend. Maybe share it with someone who you think might need it right now or is looking for their next career move. On behalf of Youth Villages, my name is Sam Coates, and I'm reminding you that you are stronger than you think. Before we go, here's a sneak peek at what's to come on our next episode with Youth Village's own Trisha Murphy. We'll see you back here then.
I've definitely had tired days, but I definitely know this is the area I want to be in. And I don't think my passion has ever ebbed and flowed. I think I've just been tired some days. (laughs) 